The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Hi there. George Hook here with The Right Hook on News Talk, Tuesday's version. And if there are things you missed on the show, or indeed if you missed the show in its entirety, here are some of the highlights. Well, five years ago today uh, was the beginning of the Syrian crisis, a crisis now uh, that it is fair to say has the possibility of overturning the European Union, creating all sorts of of difficulties across the globe. I wonder what we were thinking five years ago. Well, to explain it to me is the lecturer in Middle East politics at University College Dublin, Vincent Durack. Vincent, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Well, how did it happen five years ago? What was going on here? What was going on in Syria five years ago was really very, very unexpected in all sorts of ways. Um, In one sense, it might have been expected, given that from January of 2011, a little over five years ago, we saw the rapid uh, success of very uh, unexpected protest movements in Syria uh, or in Tunisia, in Egypt, in unseating autocratic regimes in those two countries. And The protest movement that uh, generated from that uh, was expressed in turn in Libya, in Yemen. But many people, even in the spring of 2011, felt that Syria was an exception. So indeed did its president. Now you mentioned, sorry, the spring of 2011. This was the Arab Spring, therefore, was it? This is the famous so-called Arab Spring, not a term I ever liked, but uh, a series of uprisings that began in winter in Tunisia. But... uh, um, that unseated, ultimately unseated, uh, four long-standing autocratic leaders in the region, in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Libya, and in Yemen. Um, but many saw Syria as different for a few reasons. Unlike the others, uh, with the partial exception of Gaddafi, the Syrian regime wasn't beholden to the West. Unlike the others, while Bashar had been in power for 10 years and his father for 30 years before that, he was of a much younger generation than the gerontocratic, the elderly leaders of uh, these other countries who seem to have been around forever. And he was also generally reckoned to be more in touch with his his people, rightly or wrongly. He certainly expressed those views in an interview with the Wall Street Journal just before the protests broke out. He said, we're different. We are not lackeys of the West. We're in the front line of the struggle against Israel. We express what our people feel. That was the gist of it. And yet... Uh, Syria proved to be no different in the sense that when protests broke out and when the government, when the regime then visited violence upon the protest movement, um, it spread like wildfire as we know. But uh, interestingly, around this time, Tom McGurk of Happy Rugby fame was in the studio with me talking about it and he made what turned out to be an extraordinarily prescient comment. He said, we're giving guns and money to these people on the age-old theory that my enemy's enemy is my friend and we don't know who we're giving the guns to, we don't know who we're going to give the money to and we don't know where this is going to end. Is that actually what happened? Did particularly America, because I have really vivid memories of Obama at this point, do we just throw money and weapons at the others? 
No, I mean, in fact, we not? weapons and money were indeed thrown at a whole variety of Syrian rebel forces. But Obama was and remains extremely reluctant to become involved in anything to do with Syria on the basis that, and this continues to underpin uh, the administration's approach to this on the basis that the US has no strategic interest in getting involved so in Syria. So he was doing talking, really? He was doing a lot of talking. And when push came to shove, as we all know, when chemical weapons were almost certainly used by the regime, the famous red line, um, he his bacon was saved, firstly, by the House of Commons voting against joining any American intervention uh, in, in Syria. And then by the Russians coming up with a sort of face-saving scenario that, that got Obama out of any... Okay. Unintended involvement in Syria. So five years today, we've done the historical bit now. So five years later, we have, and and we're, we're reprimanded from using words like flood, but I think it is true, a flood of refugees are now entering Europe. Uh, ISIS is now uh, a force like we have never seen. So where are we now five years later? What's, what's your read of what's going on? Well, the refugee question, um, I don't like the term flood, um, is undoubtedly a huge challenge and undoubtedly a clear consequence of the Syrian crisis. Um, And it is, as you said correctly in your introductory remarks, it it, it represents an enormous challenge that Europe simply is not addressing in any coherent fashion. Quite where that takes us, well, we could talk about that for the rest of the day, but without a shadow of a doubt, there is no sending everyone back to Turkey and hoping that the Turks will make this magically disappear, which seems to be the best wisdom uh, of Europe. Or alternatively, uh, somehow all of the refugees make their way to Germany and that solves the problem. Um, neither of these positions is tenable. So there are real and persistent problems to be dealt with. ISIS is, I think, different in a sense because, yes, it's it's real. Yes, they hold territory. Um ISIS is, in many respects, a symptom of dysfunctionality in Syria and Iraq. If it were possible, it's a big if, to render either or both of those states functional once more, then you could tackle ISIS. It won't be done today or tomorrow, but in a sense, it's a clearer agenda because ISIS doesn't, I think, represent a long-term stable future for the peoples it controls. And I'll tell you why I say that, because it's premised on expansionism. This is premised on the notion of a global caliphate. I may be wrong. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So either they do what the Taliban did, they begin to chip away at their own principles and then in turn they begin not to be the thing that they're saying they are to the people who rule over them or they continue in this demented attempt to take over everywhere, which is equally not going to work. But like your and my guest is Vincent Dirac and he's lecturer in Middle East Studies at University College Dublin. I mean, you study this place. This place has been a problem since Balfour in, in 1914 or 15 or whatever promised the Jews a homeland in Israel, essentially, you know, for his own political needs. And since then, uh, uh, Lawrence of Arabia with the Arabs, you could, like, it's it's been a hotbed of problems. It puts the ball to shame as a as a, a problem for the world. Um, ISIS, they may fail in a world caliphate, but they might create an enormous amount of damage on the way to failing. They Well, they've clearly already caused yeah. an enormous amount of damage on the way to failing. There's no doubt about it. What I meant by that, and I, I don't, obviously, don't mean to trivialise either the significance of ISIS nor the challenge yeah. that they pose, but what I did mean was even though we're prone to thinking we've never encountered anything like this before, 
to some extent, we've been here before. There have been other uh, caliphates specifically that have risen and fallen, none necessarily with the, 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 the loss of life that we're seeing associated with ISIS. But what I am saying is that they're symptomatic of underlying issues. It's not something that would otherwise have manifested itself if strong functional states had existed, had continued to exist in, in Syria and Iraq. But also if, and this goes to your your, your point about Balfour, um, if you did not see the extent of interference on the part of other actors, both historically and in the contemporary setting. So whether it is the meddling, uh, as you might see it, and remaking, map making, uh, country inventing interventions of Britain and France in the early decades of the 20th century, or whether it's the new great game that's being played out in the region today, it's this intersection of domestic and international or regional interference that, but, that but, gives, yeah. makes possible the spread of... Uh, but what makes this different, though? I mean, uh, I, I know we had a, a religious conflict in Northern Ireland, but essentially it was it was parish pump stuff compared to world politics. The, the, the question of religion makes this a different kind of problem, does it not? In the sense that you can go back to when when the Arabs came in, and, and Arab still exists in Spain, if only in the architecture now, but you think how far they got in Europe, or you think of Attila the Hun before that. You don't compare these to those kind of conflicts in past history, where there is a sense to move this to the gates of Rome. No, I don't see it remotely in those terms. In fact, I think religion is much less uh, a feature of all of this than you might think. I think, yes, I think in very significant part, of course, religion is important in the sense that it is mobilised. It is where people go in time of crisis. But despite what you say, for centuries, for absolute centuries, Religion has not been the primary source of conflict in the Middle East. Land has, resources have, all sorts of things have. Um, The Middle East has not experienced a century of religious wars such as Western Europe did in the consolidation of its modern state system. So yes, of course, you do get what some people refer to as sectarian entrepreneurs, those who will use religion, Mm. mobilise religion, um, but they do it in the context where people are otherwise dealing with scarce resources, political resources, economic resources. But if you look at threatened, or if you look at Spanish Civil War, Mm -hmm. I mean that's the late nineteen thirties. What we saw was this this vast movement of people who who went with the Republic, and tons of Irish people, British from all over Europe, they went to Spain to fight for the Republic against the fascists. Isn't this conflict now happening? Because the numbers are quite extraordinary. The numbers of people who've left European countries to go and fight for ISIS. Uh, And that can only mean, surely, a disruption uh, of perhaps the the way of life that Europe has had for 70 years. I'm not sure. I think they, they're You're just, not worried about them coming back. I, I'm, I'm not not worried about them coming back, but I wouldn't overstate it. I, I, I we've talked about this before. I it do t- the overstating. You do the I, fact. I, 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 that's the academic in me. I'm paid. I'm paid to contextualize. <laughs> um, but it, I, sincerely, it's it's horrific when something like the events uh, that took place in in Paris take place. It's horrific when you see uh, bombs go off. Uh, on the streets of any European or indeed any other city. And all it takes is for either some homegrown loner to take it upon him or herself to 
undertake an attack or some group of returnees to do so. In the grand scheme of things, this is not the threat to Western Europe that the Nazis were. And yet we invoke and rely on uh, changes to our ways of doing things that are more significant than anything that were done in the context of the Second World War. All right, to bring it right up to date, the news from Russia yesterday. What's, what, what, what happened yesterday with the Russians? What happened yesterday was that not for the first time in relation to, to Syria, Putin outfoxed just about everybody who was uh, looking at the, 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 the situation there. What he has done is intervened in a relatively light fashion in terms of the, the potential for, for Russia to get caught up in its own Vietnam, as people were talking about just a few short weeks ago. Um, he has managed through the quite brutal use of force to change the balance of power on the ground in Syria and is now announcing a withdrawal. But the withdrawal consists of we don't know how many troops, we don't know quite how much air power is being withdrawn, nor is the withdrawal so total that the military base is being shut down or the naval base in Tartus. So the Russians have simultaneously left Syria and they continue to bomb as they've done today. And yet Putin gets to turn to his own people and say, we won. I've extracted us from this. We we did it on our terms and our ally is still in power. And so Russia, it would appear, is our hope for the future. Russia is our hope to end this, is it? I don't know if Russia is our hope to end this, but Russia has certainly inserted itself as a key player in a way that it simply wasn't five years ago. All right. Uh, my thanks to lecturer in Middle East Studies at University College Dublin, Vincent Durack. Your thoughts, please, to 53106, cost 30 cent. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie It's Proclamation Day and uh, every school in the country holding special events to celebrate the 1916 Rising. I'm joined by Professor Union O'Halpin of the Department of Contemporary Irish History at Trinity College Dublin. Professor O'Halpin, welcome to the programme. Hello, George. What's going on today? What's the purpose, do you think? I think the purpose is, is, uh, on the one hand, perfectly reasonable, which is is to remind uh, the present generation uh, of of uh, what arguably are the immediate origins of the of the uh, the state in which they now live, I think on the other the hand the state is almost feels constrained uh, to to uh, ordain this kind of exercise for fear that it will be accused of, of forgetting the men who made the republic and all that kind of thing. This isn't the first time this has happened. I remember in 1966 being rather puzzled being assembled in school while the grandson of Cahill Brewer read out the uh, the proclamation. Which I was surrounded by Mulcahy's and people from the school I went to was very much a, what I I always said the school uniform was a blue shirt, <laughs> uh, South Dublin Jesuit school, and um, uh, it, this seemed in 1966 almost slightly at odds with the with the sort of generally uh, finnegan ethos of the place, but uh, well so in a sense we're doing that again and we're doing it with the document which is uh, in some ways very interesting. Uh, we, a some, document and a flag and all sorts of stuff I've well, seen of what, what Press Cork is doing today <coughs> and all that. Yeah. yeah, but the document itself is is 
I think people, it'd be wrong to look at the, at the 1916 proclamation as any kind of constitution. I don't think it's a complete set of founding principles for a democratic society. I, th- I think what it is, is, is a piece of rhetoric. It's a speech written, I think, very largely by one man who was a very good rhetorician, very good at delivering things. It's, it's in, in Republican terms, it's somewhat incomplete. In terms of Patrick Pierce's own ambitions, it's relatively incomplete. There's no mention of the Irish language except in Public Naharan at the top, and even then, it's missing a father or two. Uh, and it's it's generally perhaps not as as coherent or comprehensive a document as we're told, and it certainly isn't. Uh, these are not the the, the uh, you know the tablets that that Moses brought okay. down from the mountain. Yeah, yeah, but. Um, this generation, like I have two grandsons, 12 and 10, um, whose understanding of this, I would suggest, might be, I don't know, I'm going to quiz them, all right, after today, but whose understanding of this might be quite slim. And I would venture to suggest that a 12-year-old George Hook in 1953, being closer to the events, might have had a much greater understanding of it albeit in a biased kind of way, but I would have known more about it. Well, I think you would, uh, inevitably with the passage of time, that's the case. I think also interpretations of the, what the proclamation meant then and, and what it might mean for present generations are radically different uh, than they would have been, say, in 1966. I think you'll find now that people will read into the text of the proclamation uh, issues to do with uh, rights, for example, of non-Irish people coming here, uh, which at the time would not have been conceived of save in respect of the explicit Irish diaspora. And that's fine. Over time, any document is reinterpreted by successive generations. But the mistake would be to take this as the founding constitution of the the Irish Republic or of Irish democracy, because that it's not. It explicitly invokes a secret society, the IRB, uh, an oath-bound society, uh, uh, which is not a neither democratic nor nor anti-democratic, but it's a non-democratic entity. The democratic entity in, in, in 1916 were the political parties. You, you had, you had save, as in Britain, that women couldn't vote. You, you, had a, you had a franchise. Secondly, at local level, you had a very, very wide electoral franchise. And there's a danger of losing sight of, of the parliamentary and the electoral uh, in the heat of the excitement of this All right. Event. But you're professor of contemporary history at Trinity College Dublin. So you're now, you now got 18-year-olds coming in to study contemporary history. Um, those 18-year-olds are a small group, I would suggest, because they're actually interested in this topic. So if there's 30 guys in their class, there might be only two or three of them who are really interested in contemporary history. The other 27, I mean, I'm asking you because you have a better knowledge of the modern 18-year-old than most people. The modern 18-year-old isn't hugely excited by all this. Well, some are and some aren't, but they aren't guys. In fact, I would say that a slight majority. Of Sorry, people I used the word are, "guy" are, in a multi-gender women. role. Sorry, and, and <laughs> um, okay. some some come into Trinity as they come into UCD or to UL or anywhere with a burning interest in the Irish Revolution, and they end up not studying it at all because they discover they 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 are required to do other courses in topics they've never heard of, and they get so absorbed by them that they never come back to Irish history, and that's all to the good. So it's it's wrong to think. So contemporary Irish history for these men and women, and thank you 
you for correcting me, for these men and women. They may well arrive in wanting to talk about Pierce, but they finish up talking about Bismarck. Is Bismarck, that what you're or saying? Herodotus or whatever. Absolutely. The nature of a university education is, and I hope it continues to be, if the HEA don't have its way, it, it's an open-ended heuristic exercise where people will stumble across topics, personalities, issues, which they never heard of before. An example, of, I would say, for example, is gender in Irish history, which is hardly explored, least of all by me. Well, can but, I... But yeah. that, that's really, it's okay. really important that we, that we understand universities are for opening minds and they're for exploration. They are not for, for the completion of a specific rigid diet. All right. Now, um, I, I, boys and girls, men and women, uh, are looking back 100 years hence today particularly school children, because that's what it is today. Today is a day for schools. Now, for all the girls, and you've got to assume there's 50% of school children are girls, they, they have been airbrushed. All their antecedents have been airbrushed out of history, haven't they? Well, I think that's wrong. I don't think airbrush is the right term. No, it's not. I, I don't think that uh, that that uh, the, the problem is that the public sphere and the political sphere uh, in the uh, until I would say the early twentieth century was very largely in exclusively male sphere. That in itself is a historical problem. It's also a problem about the way we write history. Well, I think airbrush is the wrong term. All right. Well, I'm going to talk about airbrushing immediately, but I want to make sure everybody knows who I'm talking to. Professor Yunan O'Halpin of the Department of Contemporary History at Trinity College Dublin, because today is proclamation. Day. Every school is a flag, the proclamation, and they're doing something to commemorate the rising. But is it not true that all the pictures of Pierce at the surrender, standing in front of General Lowe, I think it was, there was actually a woman standing next to her, but she has been airbrushed out of all the photographs. Well, well, there, there's there, there, there's a particular point about that which is not to do with any conspiracy. I, somebody or a lot of people have done some work on this. In a sense, it's a useful metaphor, you could argue, but I don't think it was the case that she was consciously put out because she was a woman, right? That Nurse O'Farrell. Uh, but more generally, I think even those of us who, who would be dubious of the of the proclamation as a, a, a complete and uh, entire and satisfactory basis for uh, Irish democratic politics. I mean, if you look at, for instance, the, the French uh, French national anthem, the, the Irish national anthem, the British national anthem, which people learn and sing and so on. Uh, if you anal- analyse the texts, they are bizarre. They are completely... I mean, they, they almost have no modern re- resonance, and yet they, 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 people have an attachment to them, and I think it's perfectly proper to have an attachment to the proclamation, okay. but not to read it okay. as a sacred text. All right, but you skipped away from the women pretty smartly there. It, it well, is... women skip away from me, George. <laughs> but it is also true, and her picture, I'm happy to say, is at the, the super, and you must go and see it, a museum in the Ambassador Cinema in Dublin, the 19th, the Revolution Museum. Um, there's a woman there who's named escapes me at the moment, although Kevin Myers gave her a terrible rollicking in his article. But when she she was a, a, a veteran, the GPO and all that sort of stuff, and when she went for a pension, whatever number of years later, as a volunteer, she was denied a pension on the grounds that a soldier was a man and that she wasn't entitled to a pension. Well, now that uh, yeah, you need to ch- I need to I need to look at the specific files. The pension records, which I had played a hand in lobbying to to be released, are really interesting. Uh, the pensions legislation w- was changed in 19, 1934, so the members of Common Among could apply, uh, uh, which hitherto had been denied to them. Even then, no matter what they did, they could only get get uh, a pension at at the, at the lowest rate, and that's plainly the case. That it was it was considered that that really the battlefield was no place for females, other than make making tea, carrying messages, which 
could be just as hazardous, more hazardous than, you know, firing from a fixed position and, and, and tending to the wounded. Uh, those are the expectations, uh, very largely, not of, not of women, but, but of the men, of men at the time. But there was also a thing, I remember when the three, we were jumping admittedly, but I want to stay with this gender thing. I suppose the Irish were no different. Had the rising taken place in any Western country, uh, it would have been a male event anyway. Wouldn't that be so? It would have been very largely. I think you, you might find in some anarchist groups in Central and Eastern Europe or Central and Eastern European origin that women might have been accorded a, a fuller role. Um, uh, and uh, certainly, um, uh, as the if you look at India, for example, in 1930, 31, there are serious terrorist acts carried out. In fact, an attempt to kill an Irishman, Sir Charles Teagart, in which a woman who throws a grenade, which then misfires, is, is mortally wounded by her own uh, by her own thing. So so women are, to some extent, uh, increasingly invested with some, if you like, uh, power, military power. But it, it, there's two things then, um, uh, Professor, I want to talk to you about. One is uh, the, the rewriting of history. Um, and I don't mean this in a bad way. Can you, as a, a professor of contemporary history, can you find something new now 100 years later? Or is it all done and dusted now in historical terms? Oh, I think there's lots, lots, lots of new, new. First of all, there's lots of new material in the pensions records, especially. Secondly, there's new ways of looking at it. I'd argue, as many others would, that 1916 is part, part, part. For example, of the Great War, right? It's also part of of what becomes a, a series of anti-colonial <coughs> acts of defiance, not only across the British Empire, but it's also part of of a tactic of war which all the empires indulged in, which was to stir up the subject peoples of each other. As Lawrence of Arabia, an Anglo-Irishman, you know, is stirring up uh, the Arabs under Ottoman rule and so on. Uh, the the people, the Russians are doing the same. Uh, the French are doing the same, uh, and so on. So stirring up the other side's natives, inverted commas, as it were, is absolutely a tactic of the First Great War. And that's another way to look at the rising. I think it's more interesting that way than to look at it as a solely Irish right. and unique event. What about Trinity? Are you doing something to mark this? Yeah, we're, we're, we're having a symposium this evening discussing the six, the six occasions by the proclamations iteration, uh, which in, in, the, in the past 300, 300 years in which Irishmen took to arms to assert the right to independence. 300, 300 years of risings. Well, that's that's what the proclamation says, but I think we have to treat the proclamation with, with, with due, you know, we have to contextualise it. All right, okay. But, but um, it's interesting that uh, we're celebrating, it, it's, a, it's kind of Anglo-Saxon thing, isn't it? We're celebrating failure, whereas success actually comes later. Isn't that right? I think it is. I was at the 75th anniversary of the founding of Doyle Air in, 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 in uh, uh, 1994, which was held three months late, and it was an absolute shambles in the mansion house. I was there, so my great-grandfather was a member of the first Doyle. I was at the, at the, at the 75th anniversary of the, of the founding of the new state, I think in 1997, in December '97, which was a single event in Dublin Castle, which was great fun because it was a free bar, proper <laughs> bar, uh, but there were very boring speeches by five different party leaders. But they, these were almost... Uh, Pretty, pr- and there was a stamp, free stamp on the way out. These were quite, quite perfunctory exercises as compared with 1916. But they actually, the first oil, I would argue, ha- has greater legitimacy as the founding stone of Irish democracy than does the 1916 I, I, proclamation. I want to bring people in. People had voted for it. I want to bring in another day because the French of the storming of the Bastille and, and the Americans of the 4th of July and countries of all a day that is an evocative day. Our national day, in fact, is Thursday. <laughs> 
isn't it? Like we, we, it's an interesting point to raise that all these major events in our history, which were really successes, have been treated quite perfunctorily. Well, I th- well, I think they have. I think there's a strong argument for making making uh, uh, East, Easter Monday, uh, you know, Republic Day, uh, and our. I think we should. It would be appropriate to have a fixed marker. Uh, for for the processes, however controversial, uh, that that made that brought this part of Ireland independent. But we must say that neither the proclamation nor anyone in the GPO or elsewhere had any solution to the problem of Ulster and didn't even address the question. All right, my guest, Professor Yunan O'Halpin, Professor of Contemporary Irish History at Trinity College Dublin. On today, Proclamation Day. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Well, uh, we still have no government and uh, in the meantime, presumably all critical things are put on hold. Few can be more critical, really, than the right of every citizen in the country to have a roof over their heads. I'm joined by Director General of the Construction Industry Federation, Tom Parlin. Tom, welcome to the programme and the studio. It is extraordinary that, and I mean, it's a bit of a cliche talking about the centenary of the rising and all this sort of stuff, but we have people who don't have a house. It is, surely. And uh, like the construction industry obviously went through a very difficult time and uh, became about a quarter the size that it was. Clearly, it was too big back in 2006, 2007, but it it took a a major hammering. Uh, But it is um, recovering now. Uh, we're hiring more than a thousand people every month, uh, you know, according to the CSO for the last 12 or 15 months. And you can see the cranes. Uh, we can see 25 cranes from the roof of our building. Uh, so people are building, but we're not building houses. And, uh, you know, I think the housing situation on a daily basis now is getting worse. We just heard a situation recently where 20 or 40 people are going to be moved out of their homes and they can't even find alternative accommodation. So it is a situation uh, that is serious. And, you know, I was just thinking on the way in here, uh, you know, in 1916, we and the British government and the insurrection destroyed half of the city. It had to be rebuilt with very, very meagre resources. I'm not sure how long it took the GPO to be back functioning as a post office again. Uh, but you know we have the we have the people we have the ability we have the resources to build uh, but you know the stoppages that are blocking it need to be addressed but um, rents according to something I read this week are are now in some cases higher than they were at the peak of the so-called economic boom mm. Um that just demonstrates, like that's a simple economic law of supply and demand. If you haven't enough houses, then rent goes up. Of course. And uh, all of the new cohort of people that should be buying houses aren't able to get their mortgages or can't afford to buy a new house. Uh, so they'll continue to rent or in new cases now, they're choosing to commute very long dis- distances and buy, uh, buy some houses right. maybe 30, 40 miles outside of Dublin City. All right, we can beat our chests, you know, but why don't we do something? What do we do? I mean, I find it extraordinary that a modern day, despite all the excuses, that a modern day industrial uh, democracy, Taoiseach in Washington today said, for the second year running, we're the fastest growing economy in Europe and we can't put our people in houses. So solve it for me. Like your director general of the Construction Industry Federation, presumably all your members are banging at your door saying we can build. So fix it. Well, obviously, we need to address the problem. And one of the issues is the diversity of uh, responsibility 
that's within government with regard to housing and regard to infrastructure because housing and infrastructure are very, very linked. There's lots of parts of the city uh, that has land that is zoned and available for building housing, but it doesn't have either the water, the wastewater or the road infrastructure. So that needs to be invested in because you clearly can't start building houses out in an open field if people can't get access to there or have their water connected. I suppose the other, there's so many different issues and like there's there's no silver bullet. Uh, But what I'm suggesting now is that there should be a a sort of a summit, a stakeholders meeting called by the Taoiseach at this stage. In advance of the government being formed, get in all the players like the political party leaders, ourselves, the CIF representing builders, banks and lenders, the central bank, uh, the housing associations, the trade unions, the Department of Environment and Finance, all the other players and let their expertise look at the situation one by one because, you know, zoning is a problem in land. Like God knows there's an awful land around Dublin. There's an awful lot of land that's zoned amenity. Not sure what that means, but one thing it does mean you can't build houses on it. Um, and there's land, you know, within a 20 mile radius of the city centre here, loads of land being farmed and otherwise that we could build houses on it. Yet the, pr- the value of land and the value of a site is a major deterrent. Uh, to get finance at the moment, working capital for builders to build a house, it's minimum double digit, so minimum 10%. And yet we have DSB, DCB just during the week saying, look, at interest rates are down around the zero rate. We have the new phenomenon about uh, negative interest rates. There's even banks suggesting they will give out money for a couple of years and they won't charge any rate. And yet, if you go to your bank here as a small builder and you want to build 10 houses and you want to build buy, borrow one and a half million, you won't get it for less than 10%. And you won't, you'll only get 60% from your bank. Uh, so there's a whole lot of issues. But, but if you're building 10 houses and you you need, how much to say, a million and a half? Well, it's going to cost you, yeah, it's going to cost you 150,000 per, per house. house to All build right, it. That's a million and a half. Mm. So you go to the bank and say, I want a million and a half. The bank give you 60%. Now, uh, we don't need to be geniuses to work out. It's pretty hard to get the other four or five hundred thousand. Yeah. And like, where are you expected to get it? Well, there is uh, what they call mezzanine finance. There are people that provide that finance. You know, the world is awash with money. There's people looking to get a fin- an interest rate. Clearly, the banks will have the first charge. Uh, so the other the other will have a higher interest rate, higher risk and so on. But you could be paying but 15 I, or 16%. Well, for. I saw a, a deal recently for mezzanine finance in which the interest rate was over 20%. percent hmm that's the case and clearly to look at every situation but you would imagine George at this stage that it's a no-brainer that if I went to you and said listen I have a site uh, within five miles of Dublin city centre here uh, I have uh, I have planning permission to build 20 houses there's massive demand uh, and so on so let, let's go build but now, if wh- we were selling motor cars we'd have no problem here if there was a massive demand for motor cars we'd sell motor cars the problem is that it, 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 for the motor cars we only have to ring up the fella in Germany send in 20 extra marks or whatever the car is mm-hmm. the problem is you can't get 20 new houses tomorrow well you could I suppose one of the one of the differences with house buying is that the German <coughs> manufacturers have banks and have lending attached uh, and uh, you can get a Volkswagen loan or you can get a Mercedes loan uh, at the moment or a BMW loan that is very very good value uh, whereas you don't uh, they're not ruled not by for a house. the central bank central bank have laid down criteria here and I appreciate that they have to be uh, prudent in terms of lending now uh, but the criteria are so strict that a couple earning 80,000 in Dublin uh, will scarcely be able to borrow 
that's a combined income uh, for the most modest house and the need to have a deposit of close to 40,000 and they're probably renting at the moment and it's probably costing them the bones of 20,000 a year to pay rent so how in the name of God can that couple come up with uh, 20,000 rent 40,000 deposit out of their 80,000 earnings it's it's the affordability issue is the problem No but you reamed off uh, this uh, summit you're talking about and it sounded like the biggest committee meeting in history and we're all going to be talking for hours and get nowhere isn't the real answer and I'm I'm, I've a pain in my butt from saying this and I'm sure the listeners are equally fed up when the British were faced with a housing crisis at the end of World War Two because all the houses been bombed they put one fella in charge and he wasn't even a minister Mm. they just got an MP and said to him you are now the housing guy Nobody else. You yeah. tell the county councils what to do. You, you te- he, he, even to the point, he told the workers in the county council that they were going to have to work seven days a week, they were going to have a seven-day-a-week roster in mm. order people could get answers at a time suitable to them. We're incapable of doing that, are we? Well, I mean, I'd love to see somebody, and I'd love to go and talk to that individual then and discuss the particular challenges that the industry have. And the industry want to be building. Absolutely, they want to be building. Like, house building is very labour-intensive. It is brilliant for the exchequer. Like, nearly half of the price of the house goes to the exchequer. So if we were to build the extra 10,000 that uh, all the experts say that we need, we're building half of what we need. Now, when you say the money half goes to the exchequer, that's VAT, and it's the tax that the workers pay. Yeah, that's part of it. But also, which we have a crazy situation, we have uh, um, development levies. So even though the new householder now, the first time buyer, as soon as he buys his house, will have to pay his water charges and his uh, uh, his property tax. Uh, in advance of that, he will have to cover the cost of the development levy, which is close to 20,000 per house. He also has to make a contribution to social housing, the Part 5 contribution that's been there for a very long time. Uh, Stamp duty is at 1%. So, like, there's a massive ream of, like, if you take the typical basic house, 300000 in Dublin for a three-bed, if you take, that's sort of an average price at the moment. The, the builder, one of my builder members can build that for 150000 then he has to add on the VAT, he has to add on the cost of the site, he has to add on the development levies, the stamp duty, all of that, because it's the first time buyer that has to cover those costs. And, and if there is something left over, it would be his margin. And in a lot of cases, there's little or no margin for builders at the moment. And that's why a lot of them are choosing not to build. But I saw a fellow on television last night who was a developer, and he said the only the only people who can do this are developers. Now, developer is an unfortunate word. Uh, in that everybody thinks they were the fellows who got us in trouble in the first place. Mm. And look at and there was exuberance, there's no question about it. There was free money practically and money being lashed out at people. And there was an awful lot of individuals, George, that felt that having one house was fine, but if you had two or three houses, uh, you'd have your pension that were for you in the future and people invested in property. So, you know, developers but, but, uh, and builders uh, That's were interesting, though, you say. Part of the problem was that uh, money was cheap. Money mm. has never been cheaper than it is now. Yeah, sure. but it's unavailable now, George. I mean, despite the fact that we have practically agree. zero interest rates, uh, it's unavailable uh, now. Yeah, I agree. But but the problem you the second problem you you identified was the ready availability of money. Mm. It seems here that it's a feast or a famine that you either have ready availability so you go into an economic spiral or it's not available at all and then you go into a different kind of economic spiral. So why can't we get the medium case? 
Well, I don't see any reason why we can't. I think all of the areas, and there's no silver bullet, but all of the areas are are, are easy to be dealt with. And I think if whether the Taoiseach says, look, it, I'm going to appoint X as the Supremo to sort this out, or whether he calls the group together and say, you come together and appoint somebody that's going to sort this problem out for me, or he appoints a minister for housing or construction or whatever. But I think if one individual has that responsibility and he starts going to the different areas, he'll find a solution to them and we can get up and running again. But the simple one for the economic growth and for the, that if we built 10,000 houses that are needed, it creates 25,000 jobs. And can you imagine the economic boost that that would give and reduce our unemployment very, very substantially again? Because a lot of the people that are still on the live register have house building skills. All right. Uh, the, uh, it, it, what about Aidan in Cargilline says, you and I are talking about expanding Dublin. Surely we should have a national policy for Cork as an example and, mm. and get people to move to Cork. Uh, they, George, you must know a listener says the builder is only in it for profit. Well, I never, I mean, what else is he in it for? I mean, that's an extraordinary text. Like nobody suggests a builder should be charitable organisations. Yeah, and they're not. Uh, and you know, but nobody wants them to yeah. be charitable organisations. But you know, unfortunately, there's a legacy there, and uh, it's become a toxic issue. And I think certainly governments were reluctant to deal with the whole housing and construction uh, problem over the last number of years because they didn't want to be seen to be dealing with it. Uh, but I think it has grown and it's going to continue to grow. And I think that's why it's imperative that even in advance of the government being formed, that the acting Taoiseach at the moment uh, says, "Look, at, let's try and deal with the housing situation." And that by the time a new minister is appointed, that there will be a plan for him. But this thing about 100% finance, there is a difference, is there not, um, between giving a builder 100% finance to build it and giving a buyer 100% finance to buy it. Because if you Mm. give the buyer, like, to build it, the 100% finance is only give or take, 50% the purchase price of of the house. On the other hand, if you give 100% to the buyer, it's 100% of the price. It's double it. And and they may not be able to afford I'm not suggesting either. I'm not suggesting that the builder gets 100% or that the mortgagee gets 100%. But I think there is room to 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 tweak uh, the very very strict criteria that are there. Certainly, I think if somebody has a track record of paying rent for the last number of years, and if it transpires that his mortgage for the new house that he would own if he was able to get the mortgage would be less, and there's loads of circumstances where that would be the case, your mortgage if you were able to buy the house will be less than the rent. So that you're the, proving that you can repay the mortgage. Absolutely, and that should be taken into account. And instead of having to pay the fifty thousand or the fifty one thousand, or rather put together the fifty one thousand average deposit lately, if somebody is paying 20,000 that that should automatically come off to 51,000. That gives him a break. It may mean that he'll be able to buy or the couple rather will be able to buy the house a year or two earlier than if they have to continue saving for that deposit. All right, but is it not true? Taking into account the fact that it's difficult to get a mortgage and it's difficult to get the, the deposit together but isn't it also true that there are a ton of people out there who want to buy houses who have the money like if, if a house goes up tomorrow there's a queue outside door looking at it. Hmm. So they must have the money to buy it. There appears to be also people with money who can't buy a house. Well, I think a lot of the cash that was around has been invested probably earlier than that and has got very, very good value. Um, But if we have all the problems and like traditionally, and some of my members would say that, you know, it's not that long ago, 20 years ago, a single teacher could get a mortgage and buy a house. 
Now two teachers together can't qualify for a mortgage to buy a house. So they're depending on the state. They're putting their name down on a, on a, on a social housing uh, situation and we have, we're not okay. building any social housing. All right. Either. But finally, your members, builders, um, in essence, they don't really care, do they, um, whether the house is sold to a buyer or whether it is sold for rental. It's same to them as long as they get the purchase price. Isn't part of the problem here now that because of our entire rental mess that it's not attractive for landlords to buy houses for rent or for the people to rent. So, I mean, there's no rental market. You'd imagine that with the rents escalating the way they are, that landlords should be dead happy. Landlords are trying to get out of that business as fast as they can. Now, we have some of the big international players, the likes of Kennedy Wilson and so on, coming in that, you know, have a, a global reputation to do that and to manage big big uh, rental uh, accommodation. But the typical person that owns one or two or three houses, certainly, uh, the way they're being taxed and the other issues they have, regardless of the rent increasing, they want to get out. Uh, but in a nutshell... All we have to do is get somebody in charge to actually create an environment in which houses are bought or rented. It's not what we need. Yeah, we need to start building them, George. Unless we have the supply, you know, we're going to have a growing problem. And the industry are available, the workers are there, and all we need is somebody to start cracking uh, the whip and saying, let's deal with problems one by one. And I believe they can be resolved and resolved very quickly. Well, Alan Kelly says power is a drug. Um, maybe we should put him in charge and he'll be on a high five days a week. My guest, Tom Parlin, Director General of, Const- uh, of the Construction Industry uh, Federation. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day. Monday to Friday here on News Talk. Do take care.